Welcome to the Rise of the Ageless Starman. If you are an investor, a scientist, or an entrepreneur, please join us as we discuss about today's innovation and tomorrow's creation. Together we are here to find out how to make humans creative and vital at any age. The experience that I actually had in health led to my going into communications. I was so appreciative that health is a language. It's not just a service that we provide people. And my ability to assist people with different health needs whose language I did not speak made me recognize that health in itself is a language, it's a communication, and that people, even if you don't understand each other's words, we understand each other's actions. And from that experience, I felt I wanted to go into communication specifically over healthcare delivery because it was an opportunity to impact the lives of, of many, of, of tens, of thousands, of hundreds of thousands, and of millions. And throughout my career, I have to say that communications as a healthcare career has not disappointed. So that's really the origin of this. And as, as you may know, Gil, my experience in health originates from my uh, time as a combat medic in the paratroopers, caring for um, people whose language I did speak, but often people whose language I did not speak. And yet, though we didn't share a tongue, we didn't share words, we shared human touch, we shared the understanding that when a human vessel is broken, it is our responsibility to heal, and that healing in itself is a communication, is a language, and I felt dedicated to pursue that as a career. Yes, and this is very um, ex- extraordinary experience that even with with enemies you can uh, have uh, sympathy and not everybody experienced it in life in such an extreme yes yeah that's it's very true but i i ultimately believe that when we see a human being suffering or broken that um each each human on the planet is is precious and we cannot turn our back to their needs and you know often what we find we see this today around the world healthcare professionals working in refugee camps healthcare professionals working with uh, people who have really health disparity needs um, health professionals of different sorts working in in villages and in third world nations and even today as we face the coronavirus around the world healthcare professionals gearing up placing themselves in frontline risk in order to provide healing from people all around the world, particularly our public health professionals at the World Health Organization and and in the United States, the Centers for Disease Control and other nations who recognize that the role of healer is of utmost paramount importance to our survival as as a planet. And so most certainly I was... um, I certainly was struck by that period of my life. It's never left me, and my desire to help people of all different um, needs, um, facing all different health challenges, 
um, really is a driving force within my life and I know many other people's lives. Certainly the people I work with at Finn Partners uh, around the world continue to inspire me. When it comes to medical innovation, my guest Gil Bashe is among the most important communicators in the world for more than 30 years. MM&M includes Gil in the top 50 influential people in health, and Pharma Voice included him as top 100 inspiring health leaders. Communication is in his DNA. He dealt with all aspects of the health sector, from patient, physician, providers, payers, and policy sectors. Today, besides being a managing partner of Finn Partners Global Health, Gil is a board member at the Gallian Foundation and an advisor to the Marathon Foundation and CNS Summit. He serves on the NHLBI-supported GeneTech Working Group examining how genetics impact cardiovascular diseases. Prior to joining Finn Partners, Gil was executive vice president at Makovsky for more than 12 years. He also has a background in private equity, having worked with GTCR Golder Rauner, one of the U.S. largest venture funds based in Chicago, as he was the CEO of Health and Quest Communications. We touched only the tip of the iceberg of his rich career. We must move forward as we have a lot to cover today. So those who aren't familiar yet with Gil and want to know more, I invite you to check his LinkedIn profile or just go to the Finn Partners website after the episode. So Gil, thank you for uh, joining me today. Gil, thank you so much for inviting me to chat with you today. It's uh, it's a pleasure. I know we're we're speaking to each other across an ocean at a time where um, our world seems very very close, particularly because of some of the um, public health risks that we face together and are trying to overcome together. So while you're by flight about 12 hours away from me today. Um, we're, we're moments away in terms of our, our shared concerns for people's well-being. Um, so, Gil, I deal a lot with aging science, and it's what do you think about the aging industry? Is it a fad, a trend? Uh, a- absolutely not, Gil. The, the concept of healthy aging or wellness uh, is something that needs to be a a priority across the public health domain. This this sense of in, in shifting people from sick care to self-care has to become a global priority, not just in the developing world, in the world. And there's a number of ways to do that. First of all, a lot of the challenges that our aging population face are what's called non-communicable diseases. These are illnesses that actually are created often from healthy or lack of healthy diet and lack of exercise, lack of good sleep and lack of access to preventive care. So illnesses such as uh, heart disease or diabetes or respiratory disease, even some cancers, uh, these are these are illnesses, non-communicable illnesses that that really cut people's lives short, but even more so at, at the aging process steal from us, rob from us uh, vibrant years, years where we've we've gathered or we've gained years, but we've not necessarily gained health. And I, I just want to talk about this since you've raised the question. You know, if we take a look at our 
aging population around the world and we take a look at what people are dying from specifically or the illnesses they're facing, most of those illnesses are called illnesses of aging. So non-communicable illnesses of priority include heart disease, they include diabetes, they include cancer, they include neurologic conditions like Alzheimer's, they include physical conditions like arthritis. And these are all conditions, health conditions that impact um, the aging population and particularly diminish what we would prefer healthy aging, cognitive ability physical ability, internal wellness ability. So it, it's it's not a, by any means, some sort of fad or, or a new concept or trend. It actually has to become a public health priority throughout the world. Some of that can be through preventive care, but some of that can be by elevating our awareness around the world on healthy diet, the importance of exercise as we get older, and even even how do we use power health professionals, inspire the frontline healthcare professionals who aren't necessarily doctors to play a greater inspired role in instilling in our populations a concept that we can take better responsibility for our health. It's to our, actually our government's well-being and responsibility to encourage that and actually find ways to get people to live healthier lives. What's called self-care, which means rather than wait till we're sick and access the health system, actually use the health system to inspire us to take better care of ourselves right now, keeping our weight down, eating healthy foods, reducing our sugar intake, getting exercise, and also um, simple things that are so critical. Having a social life improves cognitive well-being. Um, hearing, the data show that people who have hearing impairment or sight impairment that's not corrected, actually that results in a cognitive decline. So there's so many inexpensive things that we can do that will lower not only our global health care costs, but actually improve our longevity, our healthy longevity. There was a study made on sanitarians, people who are 100 years old and above. And what the study pointed out is that the medical expenses in their last year is cheaper than those who die at 70 or 80 years old. And this is because they stay healthier for longer time, for a longer time. And they don't get those age-related diseases such as Alzheimer's or sarcopenia as much as those who die younger. And they stay independent and uh, social active. Yes, so, that's very true. You know, you, you know Gil, you, you, you're living in, in a nation that is pioneering senior care at all different levels. When I have the privilege of visiting my Finn partner colleagues um, who are headquartered in Jerusalem and working obviously with Israeli thought leaders who are really you know, sort of bringing their message to the world, and I uh, speak with public health leaders in Israel, there's a lot to be learned from that nation, from your nation around the world. For instance, um, long-term care at home. Um, 
paying for under um, um, health insurance plans an assistant to be in someone's home rather than moving someone to a long-term care facility or senior care facility, keeping them at home longer in their community where they, they know where things are, they know their neighborhood, they, they have friends, there's, there's not a sort of a break in their day-to-day life. These are all simple things that are humane and actually keep people cognitively sharp far longer. And it's, it's true. The, the more we can keep people in their, in their own environment, the healthier they usually are. And th- when people feel that they can take care of themselves, the more inspired they are. Think about it. I, I think of my, my grandmother who was in her 90s when she left this world. She mm. was extremely proud to be living on her own. She had moved to a studio apartment across the street from a supermarket. But she loved the fact that she could get up and out and take care of herself. And that gave her motivation to get up in the morning and get going have friends and family over, probably extended her healthy life into her 90s. Same with my father-in-law, thank goodness. Mm. He's 95. He's still very active. He's a physician. He sees some patients. He enjoys it. They enjoy him. But he has really honed his day-to-day life as a teacher of others, as as a vibrant member of a family, of a community. That social interaction and the pride of doing things for himself in his household with his wife are all part of the healthy aging process. Now we, we've moved we've moved away from that, but what you said, Gil, is so important. It's not it's not just preventive care, it's intuitive care, it's self-care, it's inspiring people to take better care of themselves, not just when they're older but throughout their lives when they're younger, so they can enjoy life as they age. Aging is inevitable. It's better than the alternative, as they say. But one thing's for certain, when you're old and not well, it's miserable. To be old and well is to enjoy your years of wisdom. You, when, you're, when you're healthy and older, it's amazing how people gravitate toward you and people in turn, um, you gravitate toward people. But when you're ill, illness actually creates a separation of the person, of the self, from society. And that's an illness into itself. So healthy aging has to be a priority. Now, we have to look at the health process as having outcomes. One of the outcomes we should measure ourselves by, how many people are getting to that window of being older and actually happily taking care of themselves. And I think it's something we have to aspire to. I know I certainly in my professional life and my personal life try to set a personal example for my colleagues, often younger. But I I find that uh, being older, I have a greater responsibility as as a role model, not only to share what I know, but also to take care of myself and demonstrate that it's possible. And it takes some conscious thought. Of course, uh, yes. Um, um, it's amazing what you said about your father at 95. He, t- he has the confidence to be a physician. Um, it's amazing. Well, aging is not defined as a disease, and it's a quite re- relatively new field that that uh, scientists and entrepreneurs 
are saying they want to cure age-related disease or aging or start doing research about the process, uh, it's it's a it's a new concept and and to catch the ear and to get exposure. What would you recommend an well, entrepreneur? Well, a few things. It's 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 new and it's old. <laughs> no yeah. pun intended. So first of all, you have doctors like Thomas Poole of Harvard, um, who are treating just 100-year-old people and older. It, it's a practice that he has developed. He's written about this, uh, a book he's published on this. So more and more physicians are now treating people who are 90 plus, 100 plus, And we're seeing that population expand. So um, aging has always happened. We've always had aging. The concept of, of healthy aging or longevity or healthy longevity is, um, is a concept that we have to embrace. And it actually is not something that starts when we're 65 or 75 or 85 or 95 like my father-in-law or 100 plus. It actually starts right now. It begins a mindset in younger people that we want to have a good diet. We want to keep our white weight correct to our, our sort of bone structure and, the, and height. It's called BMI, body mass index. We, we want to keep our sugar intake low. We, we want to make sure that we're not eating fats that are high in bad fats. Um, we want to make sure we're eating um, foods that are healthy for us, fruits and vegetables. But that in itself raises a public health dilemma. We have many people, too many people, Gil, who don't have access to healthy foods, don't have access to fruits and vegetables, don't have access to healthy proteins. I remember as a child um, working at my father's business, which was cr across the street from an area of relative, um, I'd say, health disparities, seeing young children cross the street, go to a candy and soda machine and get a candy bar and soda for breakfast as children on their way off to school. What happens to those children 10 years later, 20 years later, 40 years later? We actually in the case of health disparities, breed unintentionally, but unfortunately, inappropriately, irresponsibly, a generation of people who will not have good health as they age. So diseases of aging aren't necessarily diseases of aging. They may in fact be behaviors of youth that continue throughout the life process. And certainly as someone involved in health communication, um, I find it a responsibility to advocate for those people through fantastic groups like the American Heart Association and American College of Cardiology, other groups that talk about the importance of diet and exercise. And I mm -hmm. want to emphasize that, that a lot of healthy aging, as you call it, starts much earlier in life. And even when we take a look at the role of plaque or inflammation in the cognitive health process, all of this is cumulative. So we really need to look at that. And there's a lot of things that impact healthy aging that we don't think about because of stigma. And stigma is a disease or a subset of disease in itself. For instance, people who may need a hearing aid much younger, all those folks who loved rock and roll music at full blast, 
who have no hearing hearing impediments. It's been written about in the clinical literature that people who don't hear correctly have a higher risk for cognitive impairment as they get older, as they age. That's one okay. aspect. People with sight impairments, same thing. Yeah. Um, so, it, like, if some new entrepreneur has a new idea for study or research, how can he get exposed? That's a great idea. So, look, the, um, our our senior population. So, tomorrow's senior population are are boomers. So, you know, the oldest people are what's called the GI generation. These are people who are born primarily in the 20s who you know, thankfully are still vibrant and with us. They're in their 90s and 80s. Following them is what's called the boomer generation. I'm, I'm happily part of that generation. And the boomer generation is a generation that, um, that was brought into the computer age. We grew up on desktops, laptops, smartphones. The generation that follows us, I believe that's obviously um, you know, uh, millennials and Gen Z, um, um, all those those generations. Um, when we think of those generations, they were born into a generation, into a world with computers. But let's say the boomer generation, our generation is pretty much computer and smartphone savvy. And um, it really pays for the health system, the payer system in this country, the United States and around the world, to leverage those technologies fully to encourage people to uh, stay healthy. Variety of different apps and tools that are appealing to that generation now from diet apps, from the Apple Watch, which I'm wearing, Apple Watch 4, which has a very good heart um, function app on it. Um, the uh, the internet provides great sources. There are now food services that provide ready-cooked foods that are healthy. So the boomer generation is a very much a consumer products-driven generation. So there are so many enterprises out there for entrepreneurs to align with. First and foremost, there are hospital systems. Hospital systems want to shift their business model from handling the sick to, to actually being centers for the well. And that's one center. Hospital systems of note, which are large um, in the United States and around the world. In your neck of the woods, by the way, um, there are great centers of innovation in Israel. Sheba Medical Center has been listed recently as one of the, I think, the ninth best medical center in the world. They also have an incubator there for health technology. So from Israel, certainly people should be in touch with them. There are trade groups that are great to um, connect with in Israel, like M Health Israel is a great example of that. Hadassah has an incubator right on the um, on the um, on its campus. Another great example of that. Around the world, great health systems like Henry Ford, Northwell have incubators where they're looking to partner with pioneers in health innovation to make themselves faster, smarter, and better service-oriented. Um, there's also payers who are looking for new options, and even major pharmaceutical companies are looking for digital health, digital therapeutic uh, possibilities to partner with in order to make their other products more relevant or actually build out the service offering around products. So we're at a time of great 
innovation, not just biomedical innovation, which is phenomenal, cell and gene therapy. We're at a time of great health tech and digital health innovation, and there are partners from Verily, you know, from Verily Google to Microsoft to you know Kaiser to Geisinger. Mm-hmm. All of these centers of innovation are interested in finding good partners. I'm glad you mentioned gene therapies. I forgot the name of the FDA's former commissioner. I really want to make an interview with him someday because what I read that in his shift, there was a big transformation in the FDA to allow a better access for companies who want to go in the direction of gene therapies, uh, clinical trials. Everything is need to be invented. It's everything is new. I must get an interview with him somehow. Yes. Well, Scott Gottlieb. You're referring to Scott Gottlieb, and yeah. Dr. Gottlieb really is a is an innovator. But I just want to highlight um, one aspect of Dr. Gottlieb that I think is um, is overlooked of why he's as good as he is. Dr. Gottlieb before he became the former FDA commissioner, FDA commissioner, before that, he had a previous stint in government, so he knew health policy. He had worked with Eli Lilly previously, so he understood product innovation. He's a physician. He understood the provider world. Few people remember Dr. Gottlieb is also a cancer survivor. He understood patients. And obviously, to make all that work, he understood the payer system. So Dr. Gottlieb is a pattern recognition or puzzle recognition expert who understands the health ecosystem. And that's what makes him so powerful. Actually, uh, unintentionally, in parallel to that, when we created the Finn Partners Health Practice in uh, 2015, that was our mantra as well, to enable clients to navigate successfully the complex health ecosystem. And those enterprises or people who are able to help innovators navigate that system are really providing a tremendous service. Dr. Gottlieb is a great example of that. Yeah. Uh, yes, and, and one of the barriers I see in order to make it innovation faster, uh, the clinical trials. They take a lot of time. And in recent years, the costs are uh, only raising. It's another uh, barrier. It's, you know, someone wants to start an idea, but he knows he needs so much money and it will take so much time. What can we do about it? Well, we're dealing with um, many complex issues, and certainly in the United States, we have a lot of people. We have a lot of people who have diverse points of view. Um, I think what can we do about it? First and foremost, it it actually beyond wisdom and experience, knowledge. Actually, one of the greatest um, attributes of behaviors that advances people's care is actually a mindset of collaboration. And the mindset of collaboration, it sounds easy, but if we take a look around the world, right now we seem to be challenged to put that into the forefront. Our medical system often is challenged the same way. 
We have payers and doctors who are not working with each other. We have a product innovation sector that is really feeling under siege by policymakers and payers. We have patients who feel they're not being heard. We have innovators who are trying to get their message across to gain essential access to capital, to resources, so that they can pursue innovations that can improve the human condition. So I, I think that some of the greatest success stories that we see from public health and from uh, what we'll call you know, sort of like the commercial side of health mm-hmm. are where people understand how to navigate the health ecosystem and how to collaborate with diverse partners. The inability to understand the other is probably one of the greatest obstacles we're facing right now in improving people's health. And I, I want to give a classic example of that. You know, our doctors today around the world, around the developing world often are hard pressed for time. That's a problem. And this being hard pressed for time means they don't have the opportunity that they would like to spend time with their patients. Listening, understanding is the foundation for having what I'll term empathy of the moment and to use the the language and experience of the patient to help get closer to them and help resolve the underlying health concern. So these are some of the challenges we're facing. They're not just challenges of biomedical innovation or technological innovation. They're challenges of human understanding. And unless we can under, we can appreciate how understanding the need of a human is paramount to resolving their challenge, it's really hard to get, a, get on top of the problems we face from a public health or a global health standpoint. And, and actually, you know, we were talking very early in this podcast about my, my early experiences in military medicine. And that was the shift I made on the battlefield, actually. I, I recognized that to help someone whose language I might not speak, they might have been just beforehand my enemy. Obviously, when a human being's body is broken, they're not an enemy any longer. They're not a combatant. They're a broken person. Yeah. But, but I made the priority to seek to understand what fears they had and challenges they had through my eyes and my touch. And that made them very cooperative and, and actually uh, helping me help them. I think our system needs everyone to help each other right now. Yes, good communication is important. Sometimes we might know more than we think we know, um, but with the lack of good communication, doctors are missing the diagnosis and later it can reflect on the research we make. Yeah, so so this is, by the way, happens often. You know, I look at um, the the situations that we face, um, often the inability to listen to the patient leads them to, can lead to a, a misdiagnosis, but more so there's another problem I think our, our system faces because doctors don't have the time that they would like. And I actually think that the big challenge is right now, the big challenge right now is actually we're treating symptoms instead of people. Mm-hmm. So often, rather than understand the underlying cause of a disease, 
we look at the symptom and treat the symptom. Whereas we might be treating the symptom of type 1 diabetes or type 2 diabetes or heart disease. The disease might be diet. The disease might be lack of exercise. The disease might be understanding what is good diet. We may not understand how to read the food label, but we might quickly move to treat the patient with metformin to, to address their type 2 diabetes rather than say, maybe I can reduce their weight and improve their health and get them off this drug altogether. That would be a better treatment. How do I do that? But because we don't feel we have the support system in place, we end up treating disease, sick care, instead of focusing on how do I get this person back to wellness? Yeah. So that leads to make better environments to, I don't know if control people, but uh, to empower them to make, you cannot just tell someone, okay, you need to to do more sports and he will do it. The environment we need to somehow to create should empower him and make him choose it. Um, on on the contrast to what I said before, the, ri- the rising cost of uh, clinical trials, um, today data science and analytics can do a lot more uh, in drug development that we used to do. They can make it sometimes more efficient and faster, and they can uh, show us uh, some results that we wouldn't have uh, even some insight that we couldn't see by, by ourselves. But here, again, there there are obstacles. One, it's very hard to uh, compete with other industries on uh, talented employees because mm-hmm. you, know, you know gaming is easier than drug development <laughs> that's it and uh, or ed tech company um it's faster results less risk in research it's much easier and second medical records are not always available to companies um, and if they are available you know i don't know in israel it's quite organized the data yes, yes but it some, is. i think in the us you need to cross some a few systems in order to make the data work so it's not always available uh, how how would you address that well um, and the israeli health system is a closed loop system meaning most people have been in the self-health plan their entire lives. Even they're in the same health plan as their parents. Um, and and you have hospital systems and doctors and pharmacies that are all part of the same EMR, electronic medical record system. So uh, it's not unusual for Israeli um, data to be purchased by American biopharmaceutical companies so that they can use this in um, better understanding patient use of medication and its its impact. Uh, it was t- termed a few years back as big data. Now, of course, we've moved to artificial intelligence or machine learning. So Israel has a much 
um, more, I wouldn't say advanced, just advanced, but much more organized healthcare system of records. Also, because of the system structure, um, these data can be used as part of the sort of assessing uh, patient care and, and even in clinical trial use. The United States doesn't have a system of interoperability. Even in the same city of New York City, uh, NYU Langone's uh, medical records for its patients don't communicate with uh, Wild Cornell Columbia Presbyterian's medical records, even in the same island of Manhattan. So it's two different EMRs. And, and that results in added costs, actually. Doctors often are, are repeating tests in system to system because they just don't have the data available. Lack of interoperability raises costs and, and actually slows down care. So it doesn't help the patient, it doesn't help the system, it doesn't help the payer. I don't know who that the 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 fragmented system is helping at that point. But but you've raised a few questions and I just want to touch one. Clinical trials. Um, most clinical trials actually don't succeed, not because the medication didn't succeed. Many don't succeed because we can't get patients enrolled into the trial. When we try to use what's called virtual clinical trials, certainly that an app or digital records or digital participation can provide the criteria are so stringent in these real world life trials that the trial is never filled and completed. That's a challenge. So in the area of clinical trials, ideally, um, we have not yet mastered how to use technology to to make it less, to make it more patient-centric, as opposed to center-centric, uh, and that's a challenge because you have centers of excellence that are treating certain conditions that can be hours away for a patient participating in a trial, and therefore they don't participate or they drop out of the trial. That's a problem. Clearly, once we get to a place of virtual clinical trials or using digital data to get people involved in trials. Um, will have more success. So we see a lot of different challenges right now that we haven't seen in the past um, because our, our expectations because of technology have really upped and upped and upped because of that, of, of its accessibility in our consumer-based lives. You know, we're in this nation a very Amazon-oriented um, nation. I use that as a, as a descriptor. We can go on Amazon and order something and get it the next day. And yet, that expectation in terms of medicine is not met. Medicine is not Amazon friendly. Yeah. It's still difficult for the consumer to access. It's difficult for investigators to access, and that slows down the process. Yeah, it slows, that, down, slows down even drug innovation. And, and that's exactly what I said. Amazon, for Amazon, it's easier it's easier to pull the talented data scientists and uh, machine learning experts. Um, how how can we how can we pull those employees into drug development? We need to show them some kind of maybe results. I think that yes. there so, is there is a progress, and they can you know they, no one wants to be. Uh, this uh, scientist that, uh, well, I won't say nobody. I, it's a little bit too seriously, but but it's quite frustrating if you didn't during your career you didn't see any results to your work. Yeah, look, the, Amazon has mastered 
uh, commerce because it has studied supply chain management. It has squeezed the supply chain um, and how it moves product from its warehouses or others' warehouses to your doorstep or to the consumer's doorstep in the United States. I know Amazon is now coming to Israel, and people are wondering what will be the impact on um, Israel Israel's retail business, um, since Israel still really is driven by the, the mall. Um, in yeah. the United States, Amazon has really impacted um, going to a place and buying a product, whereas mm-hmm. in Israel, you don't have that yet. Uh, but the clinical research is more complex than moving cat food from a warehouse to your house. And it involves everything that um, that Israel is good at, interesting enough. For instance, Israel is far more advanced in telehealth than the United States. Telehealth exists in the United States, but medicine is practiced or licensed on a state-by-state basis. It's complex. You need to know the rules and regulations. Thankfully, that there are companies that actually are focused on helping companies, payers, uh, provider systems, uh, telehealth companies master all of the logistics of telehealth. It is much more complex legally um, in the United States than in Israel. So. Um, what we're dealing sometimes are the are are both our expectation. People are used to going to a doctor's office. That's changing in the United States. We have more and more people using walk-in clinics. That's creating a complexity that hurts clinical trials, believe it or not, because when you go to a walk-in clinic in the United States, you're going for a symptom, and you're being treated for that symptom. The whole patient is not being treated. So when you have a family physician who thinks you might benefit by participation in a clinical trial in the United States, they might make a recommendation. I don't know if a walk-in clinic is going to do that. And and that could impact clinical trial enrollment in non-communicable diseases. In the United States, you'd expect us to get very comfortable with telehealth, and yet Mm -hmm. we're not. So in Israel, because you don't have Amazon, you would expect people to not be comfortable with telehealth, but they are. So there's some dilemma there, and I think it deals with, um, you know, sort of our familiarity of, of different systems and trust in the system, and also, you know, the the doctor's encouragement to use the system. You know, I think that while Israel and the United States are both highly developed nations, they both have their own little, shall we say, uh, behavior patterns, idiosyncrasies that are very different. So, so tell me a little bit about Fint Partners and your participate over there. Um, I saw you, I saw the firm has made a few partnerships and acquisitions. Yes, yes. Well, first, let me just back up a little bit about Fint Partners. It's a very unique firm. It is the only major agency in the world that is mission-centered. We seek to be an agency with a heart and a soul that any major client would want to turn to for their brand, um, or reputation or pressing need. And you know, we've clearly have defined that category. We have a certain set of values that bind us together globally as a community uh, very successfully. They range from a desire to make a difference in the world, diversity, taking smart risks, uh, trying seeking to be a best place to work, uh, working hard and playing nice, uh, collaborative spirit, 
these are behaviors or values that bind us together as a global workplace. And as a result of that, in the eight years since uh, Peter Finn launched Finn Partners, we've quickly become the world's fastest growing communications agency. We're now more than $100 million in annual fees and slightly more than 800 colleagues working around the world together. We're in 19 nations, three continents. Um, we have leadership practices in in technology, in travel and lifestyle, consumer, higher education, um, health, obviously, since we're talking about health today, um, sustainability, corporate social responsibility, the arts, um, and other key disciplines that have really made us a world-class agency that is drawing from each other's skills and knowledge to help clients succeed around the world. The, the firm really was founded by uh, Peter Finn, who himself has a great root in um, epidemiological and social research. He was the one of the founders and president of a group called Research and Forecast. He later on became co-CEO of a mega agency. And then, as I said earlier, eight years ago, launched Finn Partners. I was privileged to join the agency five years ago with the purpose of launching our health practice. The health practice in the past five years has been cited as one of the world's top five high practices globally and the number one in the United States in 2018. It's maintained its leadership role. It's been cited number one by the, the observer. And Finn has been cited time and time again as an agency of the year and a best place to work. Um, and so today we represent more than 200 health clients around, around the world um, in five sectors. We're in the patient advocacy sector, we're in the payer sector, we're in the product innovation sector, we're in the policy sector, and we're in the provider services sector. And those sectors really are, are unique, they intersect, and yet consistent with the U.S. health system, they're fragmented. They have different economic systems, they see the health world differently, they don't always understand how each other operates or economically thrives in the world. And it's our responsibility as a, as a health practice to help them succeed in a system that isn't always aligned with each other, to understand each other's needs, each other's languages, each other's priorities, and ultimately as a result of that, to improve the health and well-being of people around the world. Are there uh, any events in the near future in uh, life science that you can recommend us or maybe absolutely we oh, can great. see you yes so first of all thank you um certainly on my horizon gil i i hope to be in israel um in the next a few months uh, speaking at an m health israel event i think the work that levi shapiro and m health israel are doing is phenomenal bringing together hundreds of health entrepreneurs, so I, I hope to um, be at that forum once again and with my colleagues at um, Finn Jerusalem. I'm going to be at a very, very important meeting. I think that people who are very much involved in health innovation should have on their radar screen called uh, CNS Summit. I'm uh, privileged to be on the advisory board, the leadership board of that group that's led by Emil Kalili, Dr. Kalali, from, who is really a, a pathfinder and pulling people together. CNS Summit was initially a neurology meeting. It evolved into an innovation meeting and now stands for Collaboration for Novel Solutions. 
I will be there. Um, and, you know, I look forward to attending various digital health gatherings throughout the course of the year, both as a participant and as a speaker. Um, but I, I would say any gathering where people come together to discuss innovation that can improve the human condition it is a place to be. And I you know certainly it's put on my radar screen. And, you know, I always look forward to attending some of these get togethers. Yeah. And you you work a lot in Israel and in the um, U.S., but are there any other locations you? Yes. So I'll um, um, Finn. Finn and myself, and I, I, I'm privileged to wear two hats. Finn is in 19 locations, and I, as a global practice head, I have the privilege of working with my colleagues around the world. They're all globalists, by the way. Many of these countries, like Israel, you mentioned, we're based in Israel, but actually all of our work in Israel is directed toward Europe and the United States. You know, Israel is a country of global innovation. People are based there because there is talent there, there are resources there, home is there, but but they're um, projecting their their value to the rest of the world. So that's why we're there. It's definitely a nation of innovation, great innovation. And we're privileged to represent some amazing clients there that are changing the world of health, like Theranica and Migraine, OrCam, and the ability to give people who have sight disabilities an ability to navigate the world and, and to actually tell them what is happening around them amazing technology um, companies like early sense medial early sign uh, anka host countless innovators in israel that are changing the world of health and so obviously we're in israel uh, we're in france and paris we have a strong health group there we're in asia pacific we've launched a globally a tremendous initiative called the fin wellness collaborative that marshaled many of our resources our practices our talents our colleagues all around the world from different disciplines to focus on how we can improve human wellness around the world. Um, health is is akin to that, but it's a it's only a piece when we're dealing with wellness. Technology is part of that. Travel and lifestyle is part of that. Consumer yeah. is part of that. Um, education is part of that. So our wellness collaborative marshals all of our resources globally. Um, I'm in the UK. I'm doing quite a bit of work. I'll be at the Giant Health Meeting in December, a uh, very important get-together. I'll be at the Global Wellness Summit in November in Tel Aviv, I think one of the first weeks of November, um, the Global Wellness Summit, which meets in a different nation every year, meets this year in Tel Aviv. I'm privileged to be there. So um, we're on the West Coast. We're in Hong Kong. We're in Singapore. We're in Shanghai. Um, we're in Nashville. People always overlook Nashville, but Nashville is one of the United States' greatest health service hubs in the nation. Actually, health is Nashville's number one economy. Music is number two. Yeah, you know I just wanted, I wanted to, to say it's not only music. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Thank you for that. I appreciate the, the plug for Nashville because it's um, an amazing city of health innovation in many different levels. Uh, Chicago, Detroit, uh, we're in, uh, in in Portland, Seattle, San Francisco, Los Angeles. So wherever you find innovation, whether it be technology or consumer innovation or health innovation, lifestyle innovation, education innovation, expect to find Finn Partners. Yeah, uh, amazing. It's a, it's. I'm sure your your work is very satisfying. Like. <laughs> 
see all this innovation. What are as so? Of course, we're talking about aging, and what companies do you think we should uh, watch in the in the field of of aging? Yeah, aging. Um, I would look at um, Aviv Scientific. Um, they are doing incredible work in the area of of um, of, of health and longevity. Um, they are really bringing uh, state-of-the-art Israeli technology and science uh, to the world on a consumer level. Uh, they uh, appreciate the fact that consumers need need access um, to to wellness approaches. Aviv, I would definitely be watching. I, I would be looking at um, all different companies throughout the world that are doing amazing things. There's a company called Amelix that's based in Boston. One of the the greatest um, terrors of of uh, certainly of of people is is uh, what's called Lou Gehrig's disease ALS. They're they're really pursuing a new therapy in ALS. Uh, the initial top line results have been shared, very promising. That's a Fin client. We're very proud to be associated with them. Uh, so there's a number of clients that we have around the world, both in the health services and health systems, but also in the biological sciences that are, are working very hard in the area of, of memory disorders or cognitive disorders like Alzheimer's and other yeah. illnesses trying to preserve our well-being. But again, Gil, I want to say that the first job of everybody in healthcare, including you and me, is to take good care of our health. Is, is not to put ourselves in a situation where we need to access the, the, the system because we're sick, rather rather to use the system to the fullest ability possible to stay well. Self-care is the best form of health care. Yeah, it's good you, you mentioned it again. I just, you know, I grew up in the 90s. Since then, like the politician, what in Israel, what are they always saying? That they need to take care that the old lady in the hospital will have a bed and instead of trying to make her not enter into the hospital because she's old and uh, keep her vital and uh, living. So true, Gil, so true. I think that, look, um, when we take a look at why people are ill um, and long-term care, (laughs) congestive heart failure, Diabetes, hypertension, high cholesterol, respiratory disease. Um, These are illnesses, non-communicable illnesses, that we can work harder from a society standpoint to prevent. There are certain illnesses that we can work hard to do our part, sometimes genetically. um, Unfortunately, we, we can't escape them. Certain cancers. You can have a genetic predisposition. But again, often lifestyle influences the genetic process. So we have to do our part. And obviously, when we need to access the system because of um, health needs, it needs to be the most advanced and ready for us. The way we do that collaboratively is actually not to tax the system economically for illnesses that could be prevented so that we have the bandwidth of resources to actually deal with our health needs if and when we have to turn to that system. Okay, Gil, we had 
a great episode. As I said in the beginning, we covered a lot. Uh, I want to thank you for uh, for coming to my, for joining to my podcast. It was a great conversation, and we'll we'll meet in Israel. I'm sure. Yeah. Again, I, when you said uh, is the is the conference in yeah, May. Yeah. So there's a, there's a few. I I hope to be there in 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 um in June, and I hope to be there in October, and November. Uh, for different conferences, and I, Gil, I want to thank you and your programming for uh, reaching out and uh, bringing up these issues. I think often we think aging is going to happen tomorrow. Aging happens right now. Regardless of your listener's age, we're on an aging journey, always from youth. We're on an, a journey to get old. It's inevitable Ideally, if we take very good care of ourselves throughout our life adventure, eating well, diet, good mental health, I want to add that, dealing with our mental health needs is a very important part of this as well, having community, accessing the system for preventive care, educating ourselves. If we do these things, hopefully, we'll enjoy the gift of longevity. Thank you again, Gabe.